This is Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul, and today we're going blind. That's pretty much the way we always operate, isn't it, Rick? It's so true. But today we're talking about blind tastings, how to do them, when they're valuable, and frankly, when they're just dumb. That's exactly the question people ask us all the time. <laughs> and who can blame them? I'm Rick Cushman. I'm Paul Wagner. This is Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul. Today we're talking about tasting wine blind, if anyone really can pull that James Bond trick and nail the 69 Bollinger. Plus, we have some pretty fun wine history, lots of questions from listeners, and as usual, we will make fun of wine snobs, particularly the ones who think they're James Bond. Stay with us. You're listening to Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul, and today we are talking about tasting wines blind. Is that what they call it when you drink out of a brown paper bag? Mm, no, that's just my lunch. That's ah. just my lunch. Although you, re- yeah. you remember the great line by W.C. Fields is, some scoundrel has stolen the cork from my lunch. <laughs> that's a great it line. is a great line. All right. Well, we happen to think that tasting blind is both useful and kind of silly, at least in some expectations. But we're going to start with the silly because, you know, that's us. But in this case, it's not exactly funny. Well, that sounds like us, too. Yeah. And sadly, yes, it does. Uh, I think one really good place to start about thinking about Tasting Blind, or maybe not, is the movie Psalm. I know you're a particular <laughs> fan about what that means. Well, you know, in the, in the movie Psalm, they, do a, they give the impression that there are uh, certain extremely qualified individuals, and the person who actually plays this in the movie is Fred Dame, who is in fact a real yeah. master sommelier, yeah. and he's a very got, got a very good palate. But um, the implication is he can taste any glass of wine and tell you exactly what it is: varietal, vintage, appellation, etc. And that's not realistic. I know that if it happens in a movie, everyone believes it, but it's really not very realistic. And in fact, one of the things that I know for a fact is that whether you teach at Napa College or the Culinary Institute of America, or whether you're running the exams for the Court of Master Sommeliers, they spend an enormous amount of time trying to track down a wine that will be absolutely typical of the region. Absolutely. Which means that there are relatively few wines that are typical that way, and all the rest taste something different. Yeah. So when you give somebody a wine that's just a little bit off, then it confuses them. And I read a magazine story the other day that I thought was fascinating. The magazine's called Art Culinaire. It's a beautiful hardcover magazine about food and wine. And in the back page, they ask three highly, highly qualified uh, wine experts to taste a wine blind and give them their tasting notes. All three of these guys tasted this wine blind. They gave the tasting notes. In fact, two of the three were wrong about the varietal, and and two of the three, a different two of the three, were actually wrong about the continent where it came from. Yeah, and there you go. And that is that, that which isn't to say, and we're gonna we're gonna get deeper down this road. This isn't to say that that um, expert wine people don't have. Very distinguishing palettes, but the the ability to quote unquote nail the varietal, nail the place, right. nail the, you know, is is in part because, and as you said, is that because few wines are wines are not uniform, 
not much is uniform in the wine right. world, and so things don't exactly taste like the region. And you well, know, and things change. Well, I and, mean, the regions change, vintage change, styles change, all of that changes. You know, I, and I, I mean, I want to go back to that point because that I think it, we we almost you know when the, when you make a good point, Paul, I, I I you know I need to stop and say, wow, you know, it happens so rarely. I know that's what I'm saying, <laughs> but but it is a really good point, and it's worth noting this idea that, and I know this too, having been through classes at the Culinary Institute of America where they talk so often, and our friend Tim Geyser was taught one of them, right. um, they talk so often about you know searching far and wide for these absolutely varietally, regionally, you know, typical wines. Yep. So if they have to look that hard, there really aren't any. What they, or they're not many. Or they're not many. What right. they are, they are wines that fit the description of what we expect, even though most wines don't. Right. You know, so, and that is that, you know, un- and, and then, as you said, things change. So it's not. This is not something that 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 you're going to get that often. The other part of the movie Psalm that I am not a fan of, and I, I think it shows one how hard these folks work for it. Mm-hmm. You know, and we know. Uh, and and the the dedication, verging on insanity that they require in order to work their way through this program. It is enormously difficult. Yeah, I, I know a handful of uh, people climbing the ladder here in, mm-hmm. in, in mm-hmm. this region, and I actually wrote a story about a bunch of them, and they are, these are good people. They're, they mean well. They want the wine world to be interesting. They want people mm-hmm. to fall mm-hmm. in love. Mm-hmm. With the wine. But but what the movie Psalm sort of implies is that that's the only way you can be, that that you have to you have to be constantly learning every tiny little piece of it and right. you know frankly we have this this odd little uh, thing called the uh, I think it's called the internet and uh, you can look stuff <laughs> I've up. heard of that yes yes and so you can look things up if you don't know about it right. uh, and and learn that way as well well in fact uh, I know a number of master sommeliers who would tell me they passed the exam say 15 years ago 20 years ago and they would tell me today if they were forced to go back and pass the exam they probably couldn't do it it's that hard to keep up on all this stuff there's sure. such an immense amount of knowledge you need to accumulate and frankly, after you've passed the exam, you don't use a big chunk of it very often. And you know what happens if you don't use it? You lose it. I've heard that. I've heard that. That's what happens. Well, and you know, and we've we've also heard these many stories that um, lots of lots of writers, oh, critics, whomever of critics, um, love to use about not even getting the color right. Right. Absolutely. And and they are one very valid stories. Yep. But they're not—they're not a disproof that a, that an experienced palate is not has does not have some value. But you know there is something that to go sideways on the blind tasting uh, because there's many many uses for it. Um, but to go sideways on the blind tasting point about just tasting is that everybody's palate is different, everybody's taste buds are different, everybody's olfactory glands are different, and so so that um, you know having somebody that can help sort of semi describe something to you is is on the one hand very useful, but then it's only sort of useful because they're not going to taste and smell things that you taste. But these it's people can at least like put in a ballpark. It's very much like a class in art history. Everybody stares at the same picture. The professor says, here's the stuff I see, and people in the class say, yeah, huh, why is Mona he talking Lisa about- is totally smiling. <laughs> She's a happy young lady. <laughs> she has bad teeth. That's what I said. That's what I heard. That's right. Um, so, so there's. So, why would anybody want to do a blind taste? I mean, I'm I'm not talking because you and I have both participated where you sit down with a winemaker and you taste twelve wines, or you, as head judge of the Sacramento, the California State Fair, select people to sit down and taste all these wines blind to pick out the best wine. But people don't generally buy wine that way, right? Right. So there are, but there are uses, and and 
And the we're gonna we're gonna finish with this because are we the best is it's fun to do. It is fun. We're to do. gonna go back to that. I'm gonna okay. talk about how to do that okay. because that's one reason right there. Um, right. So the, the another is because we are influenced by many things. Mm-hmm. In fact, I, I I love this. One of my favorite stories is the is the uh, studies because you know me and my studies. I love my studies. Yes, you love your studies. Caltech did one about a year ago um, where they h- hooked up a bunch of people to functional MRIs. Right. And they told them the wine was expensive. Right. And their pleasure centers lit up before bef- they tasted the bef- wine. No, no, before they touched the glass. Oh yeah, before anything. Right. Yeah. It was they, just were knowing it. they were already having a great were, time were, with that hundred dollar bottle of yes. Cabernet. Yes, and so it, and yeah. it turned out, in fact, that it wasn't a hundred dollar bottle of Cabernet. No, but, but they, they still were still anyway. having a great right. time. Uh, another one of my uh, a really favorite favorite ones that I use this when I talk to uh, restaurant people about training. It was the Cornell School of Administration. They they were a big deal. Uh, uh, hospitalities, uh, mm-hmm, hospi- mm-hmm. school of hospitality and administration. Um, they uh, they send a bunch of people to a restaurant. They were doing a handful of different things on the same study, but they send a bunch of people to the same people over a period of a week to a restaurant um, for the same meal, price fixed meal, with one wine. And they told half of them it was Johnson Winery from California. Right, and they told half of them is Johnson Winery from North Dakota. Right, no surprise by the way. They liked the California, California wine, wine much better. better. It also turned out they liked the food better. They actually right. ate eleven percent more food. I like that part. <laughs> uh, but yeah, you know, so so all of these factors influence what you think of the wine. Now, yep. so we as wine drinkers have all these factors in our pockets when we order a glass of wine or buy a bottle or go to a winery or get some whatever. But but. We when we trying to give people some guidelines to whether it's a right. quality wine or not quality wine. That's where right. this, the, the judgings come in. Well, and in in you know, there's a little bit of the old sports analogy. You know, ball don't lie, blind tasting don't lie. All that other stuff affects things, but when it boils right mm-hmm. down to it, if you absolutely want to know exactly what's in the glass, which let's be fair, that's not the only reason you buy a, a bottle of wine. Right, But if you just want to know what's in the glass, the easiest way to determine that is say, okay, here's a glass. I have no idea. And so then and then there becomes the levels of blindness. Uh, like yes. in, in our one case, one eye or two eyes. Well, in our case, it's you know, it's mostly <laughs> this in terms of information. Um, but it's um, you know, do you know, for example, the varietal? Right. Do you know it's Cabernet or just know it's some wine? Well, perfect example of this is your is your example of the North Dakota wine. Right. Because if you gave, and I believe this still happens at even some of the best wine magazines in the country, if you know you're sitting down and tasting— With a flight of Napa Valley Cabernets. You are going to taste those wines with a slightly different perception than if you know they are, say, Gamay, Napa Gamay, and Dolcetto from somewhere else. Right. And, you know, what do you know? There are even whole regions and there are whole varietals that never get top ratings from those magazines because they're not good examples. No, because you can't make you can't make a hundred point Sauvignon Blanc. Right. Well, if you can make a hundred point Cabernet, why can't you make a hundred point Sauvignon right. Blanc? Right. Mm-hmm. Right. And it, so that is, that is a huge piece of it. And you certainly can't make a hundred point Sauvignon Blanc from Lodi, no matter how good the wine actually is. Right. You know. And and so I mean, all of those factors uh, they they all weigh in. And and you yep. know, some some of the best critics try really really hard to do as blind as possible. Yep. And that's what what's what but the competitions most, do. Most critics 
when given the opportunity, will decline to participate in a public blind tasting. Oh, yeah. If you ask them, go up on stage, taste a bunch of wines blind, and tell us what you think, most of them will run the other direction because, you know, you know they have nothing to win I gotta, and they have everything to I lose. i got to remember th- this advice because I've too often actually done that. <laughs> well, I did it recently. I'm happy to do it because I, I got nothing to defend. I just figured nobody expects anything out of me anyway. I did it re- <laughs> with, a, with a dear friend of mine. We For a, a Society of Wine Educators, their national conference, we did a program where he picked four wines and I picked four wines and we served them to each other blind and we asked the other person... You talk us through your tasting method. You talk us through and you try to identify which wines are which. And out of the eight wines, he got zero of my four. And an audience of wine educators, probably 100 people in the room, I think, I think there were two or three people who got one of my wines. And when it became my turn to guess his wines, I actually got one of them right. But it was only because... I knew where he was from, and I knew he had and to include doing other kind of one wine work. that was yeah. his. Yeah. It had nothing to do really with the wine. It just had to do with what I thought he must be doing up there on right. stage. Right. So, so that, so I, I just I can't make this point strongly enough. So, so as you keep saying, this is really, really hard sport. Yes. But blind tasting still has its value, and 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 expert palates have their palates have have their value too. So, one of the places where it is valuable is I would argue like something like a, a wine competition because you've got a, you know it goes through there's enough people tasting over a period that you you get a decent evaluation of the quality of the wine well and they're it doesn't very qualified have to pick it out too. right right they are very i mean you you work really hard to pick just the judges to judge that competition right and so that you know that's where these sorts of things are valuable and right. and whether they can be fooled on the varietal or not doesn't mean that the wine that they're not good at saying this there's something this wrong with this wine. wine right right Yep. Um, the and and uh, so and then the critic, the really well-intentioned critic, uh, you know, that maybe the best way is to know what the varietal is, but to not to know where it's from or how much it costs. Right. And I know a handful of critics that operate that way, and that's a, you know, it's an attempt. You know, we, we are there is such a this is such a huge, massive planet of wine. Mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm, thousands mm-hmm. of varietals, hundreds of thousands of wine, and then there's another year. Right. And so right. we're all that's looking right. for guidance. And yep. so any guidance is helpful, and if and if you are a wine drinker, one of the things to do is to f- try to find a critic, if you can, who is sort of in your ballpark, right? Or a wine you know seller who's sort of in your ballpark, or us. Just or, ask or us. Just drink what you like. Or just drink what you like. But I mean, if you're asking, will I like you this know, wine? Interesting point, because I have served m- on many occasions. I have sat on a judging panel with a winemaker who, at a later date, we discovered had one of his wines go through. I have only had one winemaker, and I've probably judged 100-plus competitions. I have only had one winemaker turn to me at one point and say, "Wine, I made wine number four. See, I've been on panels where they have said that. I've, have I've they been, been right? Yes, a couple times. Okay, a well, couple see, times. there you go. A but couple times so, not, but a couple times, yes. Right, but even so, here's a guy who makes the wine. Here's a guy who's paid because he knows how to make wine, and he knows how to yeah. taste wine, and he knows how to identify and it. He and he recognizes, yeah. And he's half the time he's yes. wrong, and in my case, way more than half the time. All right. So having said all that, it's still fun to do. It's still fun to do. And here's so how why. do you do it? Here's well, well. Here, first, I'm going to give the one more. Here's why it's fun, which is that, and, and is that because it's a, it's, it is one a good fun parlor game, which is to say, what do you get out of the wine for starters? Just right. what do you get out of the wine? You know, why do you like it? Do you not like it? And right. Then, and then it's fun to guess at it because it's fun. There's just no. Yes. No, although I'm, I'm going to say, when you do this as a parlor game, let it's the classic dinner party. 
or a wine tasting party and you got six or eight people and everybody brings a bottle and you there are there will always be a few people who believe there is a right answer. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, right. And and so tell them we said there's not. There is no right answer. Right. Yes. Um but but one of the the most va- I would argue one of the more val- valuable things to do with this. Hmm. Um if you're just a regular folks and want to have is is you know either have everybody bring one or right. or you get them yourself or have somebody else right. get them. All the same kind of a wine. It, right. you know, it could be Napa Valley Cabernets. It could just right. be Cabernets. It could just be Napa Valley wines. It could be something that they're sort of in the same class. Right. And then, you know, and you pour them blind. So what do we do? We put them in a, a paper bag, all the same paper bag. So generally you need to deputize one person who's not going to get to play. Right. But then at the same time, you got the guy who brings the one that's in a little heavier bottle yeah. or a little taller bottle. It's going to be cheat. Oh, sure. I mean, let's be fair, Rick. This is a parlor game, and people cheat all the time. But but this is how right. But this is this is how I would run my parlor game. So mm. it's still valuable despite the cheating, which is that you bring something because what's most valuable to us really is liking the wine, whether you like wine or not. Right. So you say you bring a bunch of Syrahs. Right. And and you have we have to deputize one person uh, mm. to probably have to know what the wines are, and they right. put them into paper bags, right. and then and then you pour them. And what I would have people do is you know is smell them all first, so you get you know how many depending well, on how many, and then but you're, and make, you're assuming everybody has a glass of each of the wines. Because a lot of people do a blind tasting where they have all one ten bottles on the yeah. table and everybody has one glass. More and which is un- unfortunately more common because if you get ten people, ten wines, it's an awful it's lot. It's a lot of glasses, yeah. but it's, so, it's scientifically it's absolutely completely ridiculous. Well, this ridiculous. is not about science. This no, no, is mostly about but, fun. But I mean, even yeah. fun. If you're trying to be honest and and correct about this, you got to have a glass of each wine if you can. You yeah, have to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A paper cup. Fewer of each. wines. Yeah. Fewer wines if you have to, but you got to be able to judge them against each other. I think I've got a new technique. I think the Dixie Cup. I think the Dixie is, Cup. Yeah, because yeah, you, you can go. afford to get a bunch of those. Well, and and then what you then what you do is you basically say wine by wine whether you like it, you right? Know, and and to yourself. And and right. this is something you teach a lot, which is whatever descriptions work for you, right? About the right. wine, the work, right. but, and, and and in that scenario, you will still find people who. By identifying the most expensive wine, will say, "Aha! I have a superlative palate. I can tell the difference from the bottle that cost twenty-two, because it was twenty-two, and all the rest were between seventeen and twenty-one. And the fact that I picked the twenty-two bottle means I yeah. have the best palate. And, and, they're, and gonna, they're wrong. And they're gonna want you to like the wine that you brought, so they're gonna yes. vote for their wine if they can recognize it. And then and... the other thing you have happen is the person who likes the least expensive wine is going to be embarrassed because they clearly." can't tell the difference. And of course, all of these people are working under the basic flawed assumption that price has something to do with quality. So so you know what we're describing here? We're describing something that is completely <laughs> useless but fun, kind of like us. Kind of like <laughs> us. There we are. No, I think it is I st- I think it is still a fun game and I think it, it can is. be a useful game, which is it's really about identifying wines that you like. So you you go through, you taste the wines, you size the ones you like, you size the ones you don't like. Right. It's not it's you know, maybe what maybe a better way to run it is to is to not is just to make it personal too. So you just keep your list and then you unveil them so that you know right. it's not a who who guessed what wine number one was, but right. you know, and, and it is a way to help evaluate. It's a funny thing though, I did this once with some friends and you know, it was I was just there at their house and it was everybody brought a Syrah and um they uh, uh there was some we had two of the same wine. 
and, uh-huh. w- and one was wine number two, and one, one was, was wine number seven, seven and right? they loved one and hated the rest. That's right. The other one, and that happens too. And there's something called order prejudice, which we actually Absolutely. recognize. So, so if you really want to have fun with a blind tasting, go on the internet and search for John Lithgow reading a story written by Roald Dahl. Remember the guy who wrote James and the Giant Peach and Charlie yeah, and the Chocolate yeah. Factory and all of that? He writes a story called Taste, T-A-S-T-E, Taste. And it is a story about a parlor game played in a private home in Britain uh, with very high stakes. And it is a wonderful example of blind tasting and gamesmanship. And it is the best story about wine in history. I, we, will, we will look for that, and we will come back with a report. Um, in the meantime, if, there's, if you learn anything about this, uh, what we're saying is you, you need to deputize probably one person. You probably try to put them in the same paper bag. If you can get enough glasses that you pour them all at once, that's great. If not, okay. Try not to make it a competition. Try to just make it a, a comparison for that. yourself. Right. Good luck with that. And um, the most important thing is have fun with it and Use it to find out if there's one kind of wine you like better than the other. And, it's and, really only about for you. It's not about what everybody else and, is and doing. And by the way, small pours, because what's going to happen is you're going to like the – when you're drunk, you're going to like the latter wines much, much more. Right. Yeah, all right. Uh, there you go. That's a, that's your blind tasting advice from us. Good luck with it all. <laughs> and is that a case of blind leading the blind? It, absolutely. I knew I knew that joke was coming. There you go. I didn't want to disappoint I let, you. I did, and I let you go. I let you do it. Thank you. All right. This is Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul coming up. Uh, we'll take some questions. Stay with us. to Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul, and it is time to open our mailbag and take some questions from listeners. If you'd like to ask a question that we can answer on the show, go to Rick and Paul Wine, all one word, Rick and Paul Wine. Also look for us on iTunes. You can subscribe with just a free click. Our first question comes from John Bork. He's a wine writer, a winery consultant, a co-owner of Pantheon Cellars. He's an all-around wine guy in Lodi. Yeah. And uh, I need to say, because this is what he said, I've been catching up to the present by listening to your past episodes. I'm really enjoying them. I've always said that John is a smart, smart he guy. He sounds like a spectacular he is individual. An intellect. Here's my question. This is a good question. What in your minds make for successful series of wine podcasts or videos? And what are your favorites besides your own? Well, he's right about that. He likes Wine Library TV as an example of one mm-hmm. that he found particularly entertaining. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, so... I think we need to stipulate that, of course, ours is the best. Yes. By by uh, uh, leaps and bounds. Um, let's talk about what makes them good because I think the things that make a good wine podcast or TV show is exactly what makes good wine writing, which is to be informative, entertaining, but not pretentious, and to remember who your audience is. Mm-hmm. None of which we do. I see. Well, see, <laughs> I, had, I had a slightly different perception, which is you're the guy who, for twenty years, wrote criticism of entertainment and I'm a wine guy I have no idea what makes a good podcast I'm assuming you know yeah. that all I'm here to do is answer questions and laugh at your jokes right and, and I'm not paying you enough to laugh you're not laughing enough <laughs> but um, there you go it, well it's I, I do think it's this John actually I think that there is um, one serious mistake that many folks doing podcasts make and actually doing wine TV too so first let's get to wine library TV because if anybody is in the wine business or, or I mean you know wine fan 
remember that's Gary Vaynerchuk. Gary Vaynerchuk. Sitting there Very tasting funny. wines. This is exactly opposite of what anybody would tell you to do entertaining. A guy sitting in front of a camera tasting wines. Well, but, but he remember, was, they're very short, too. Very short, but he's just so enthusiastic and entertaining yes. and a very rare personality that it became fun to watch. In fact, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to recant on my previous position and say I believe that the secret to a good podcast is at some point somebody listening to this should say, you know— if you could forget their table manners, it would be fun to have these guys over for dinner because it would be interesting to well, have sit around and have them talk about this stuff. And my fear about a lot of podcasts is the guys talking about it. Man, if they had these conversations around a dinner table, people would be falling asleep on their plates. Well, this is the second piece of it. So, so Vaynerchuk was just a fun, mm-hmm. exciting, sort of likable guy, and he was, you know, his enthusiasm came through. The second part of it is that. What often happens with wine writing and with wine broadcasting is that people think that this is my chance to talk to some winemaker, to sit and have these long, a deep elegant, and philosophical yes. conversations. And frankly, it's you know having the conversation is one thing, but but listening to it is 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 just entertaining. Well, we couldn't do deep and philosophical if we tried. Well, we right? sure can't do deep. That's we've, <laughs> we've proven that. But pacing matters, you know, and and so that's something that a lot of folks don't understand is that that what you might read a long interview that you might read doesn't go so well on the air and something that you might have in conversation doesn't go so well in reading and so it's not about the depths of the wine world it's really about it's trying the depths to be, of depravity trying to be entertaining and 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 then you take our route which is you don't worry about actually having any real content um, and and you sort of handle it. It's, right. Actually, it, what we find is that we enjoy talking to each other enough that who cares? Yeah, we have fun. Well, and that, <laughs> that's part of it, too, though. But you also do have to remember who your uh, listeners or viewers or readers are. And, and we it, have so few of them, we know them by name. We do know them by name. And we often answer their questions on the air. Um, and so that, that's that's not a, that's often not a problem. Uh, in fact, we are going to answer many more questions uh, on the air in just a minute uh, when we come back uh, in the second half of the show. You are listening to Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul. You can ask us a question at rickandpaulwine.com. We're coming back, coming right up. Besides questions, we got some bad wine writing and a whole lot more. Stay with us. to Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul. There we go. That's those sounds. Those sounds mean we're... Well, we were just talking about bad wine writing, but we have some more for you because we're we're gluttons for punishment, and we hope you are too, which is why (laughs) you're listening to our podcast in the first place, I suppose. God, I hope so. Yes. All right, Paul, your example. Well, this actually comes from a book, but I thought it was so wonderful because it's an example of what everyone perceives wine writing to be like. Now, this is a character talking in a book, and he says, It's a little shy wine like a gazelle, like a leprechaun, dappled in a tapestry meadow. Wow. Wow. I'm so... I, it's... I, they're hobbits? Well, there's leprechauns. It, must <laughs> it could be, be hobbit yeah. wine. No, I, I yeah, don't think no. they have leprechauns. I, actually, it's a different hobbits. genre. Yeah, yeah, yeah I, I think they have uh, probably somebody from the Hunger elves Games. Elves and dwarves, but yeah. no leprechauns. Shooting at the lep. Yeah, yeah. That's the that is exactly right, and it's that sense of the overwriting and the over. And it's what most people, when they read a wine description, they they see that whether it's technically that or not. And gosh, does that not help anybody? Yes, that does. Yes, does that not help? Um, 
double positive, negative, it does not help anybody. (laughs) Um, Here's the other thing, and one of the things that a lot of critics do, a lot of wine writers do, which is not a bad thing at all, it's a good thing, um, which is try to tell a story. Tell a story about the wine, because frankly, we, you know, although... You know, the story is not uh, we made a lot of money in uh, the dot-com industry and we, we always loved wine so we thought we'd start a winery which is often what people's story is but it's you know something that is is about the place the grapes the this however in this case it's the wrong story what's the story this, this is the story okay. the grapes were harvested in late October and macerated with the skins for a full month after fermentation a portion of the wine was aged in French uh, oak barrels for 18 months, resulting in layered complexity. The wine is plush and firm. The dark berry fruit is also light, and it's lined with firm talons. So just beginning to show some maturity and some leafy Soto Bosco notes, giving the fruit an autumnal feel. Soto Bosco, wow. by the way. Soto Bosco, by the way, means undergrowth or ground cover, so it's yeah, leafy. Yeah. But forest floor, forest as they floor, used to yeah. say. Yeah. So, so uh, but here's, here's this writer that thinks that what... What you're supposed to do is have the growth of the wine. You know, I don't think I don't think I want to know how many months the skins were macerated yeah. or the kinds of oak. Uh, this was both French Nevers and Elier oak. I didn't try to pronounce it because I was going to get them wrong. Nevers and Elier. See, that's what I meant. <laughs> this is why I make you do the French stuff because you have the semi-French accent. That's right. Um, but in any case, the uh, these are not things that these don't tell the story of of the wine. There's no story. It does kind of yeah. tell how it's made and what it tastes like. But in in the end, I don't think the average wine consumer looking at that is going to say anything other than, gosh, that sounds complicated. Yeah. Why didn't they just say we handcrafted it? Yeah. that Well, there's that's the other one. It should be handcrafted, uh, and, and that would totally handle it. Um, it's So this is, it, it this, this you know, it's funny. As I read that, I was getting yep. tired. It was it made me exhausted. Did I'm, it? You know, it's like you I, take a break? too much work. I almost do. <laughs> need a donut? I need a nap. Yeah, and a donut. <laughs> it's... Um, and that's the problem. So, so to go back to John's question too about um, about what makes podcasts a show, what and makes shows it fun and talking all of that wine. is it's it, it, none of this, none of what we just heard, none of that. Neither the the shy gazelle or the macerated with the skins for a full month. Those are not the things that are that make for broadcast. It's not for telling a story. If you think about in a way, think about say. I'll set a scene only in that it's say sitting around a campfire and somebody starts to tell a story about it. Remember that time that and they tell you the story and the story's interesting. It should be about leprechauns. It should be about leprechauns. See? Yes. Now we can get the leprechauns. Well, if in the there. leprechauns leprechauns actually were did something in that gazelle and, and, and then were later later macerated with their skins on. Now we're talking. Now we're talking. And it and it's coming down this road and it's coming down into this campground and it's getting closer. Yes. Now we got a story. <laughs> yes, there you go. <laughs> You're listening to Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul. And don't forget, you can find us on iTunes and subscribe for free with just a click. When we come back, we will have a little bit of history for you. Stay with us. You're listening to Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul. Yes, that means time for our historic history moment. This week, well, we've got a couple of things that are related to blind tasting. Paul, yours is rather recent history, if I recall. Well, I just wanted to tell the story since we talk about blind tasting. You know, I have been a judge on and off for the Concours Mondial de Bruxelles, which is a huge wine competition in Europe. 250 to 300 of the top wine judges around the country or around the world. Plus you. Plus me. Thank you very much. (laughs) And we sit and we taste 
blind. They give us 10, 12, 14 glasses of wine. Separately, right? So you're sitting separately. You're, not, you're sitting. not in a panel. Um, we are in a panel, but we each have our own table. Right. That's what I meant. As opposed to like in California, when you taste, there'll be four. You're basically all at the same table. Right. And so we each have our own little desk and our little desks are sort of clumped together. But we, we each have our own little desk and we taste through all the wines and we're supposed to score them. And, and we're really only supposed to score them whether they're good or bad. We don't necessarily need to score them in terms of whether or not they taste like Zinfandel or, or Napa Gamay. But all of the wines are served together as a group in a category. So same varietal, same region, right? We get the wines. We taste the wines. They take away the wines. We still have no idea what they are. And what do you think we all do the minute they take the what wine? What was that? We turn around to each other and said, what do you think that was? I don't know. What do you think that was? Yeah. I kept track. One, we were right. When we guessed, we were right about 10% of the time. There you go. Okay. The 250 to 300 top wine judges in the world write about 10% of the time. So show me the guy who's getting it right all the time. James Bond. He's cheating. Yeah, well, he's, now got, Bond, he's got script writers. Yeah, that's right. He's got script writers. And plus he's a superhero. Or the other possibility is if you drink one wine your entire life. <laughs> Bollinger. If you're in, in only theory, drinking yes. Bollinger 69RD, yes. then yeah. fair enough. You yeah. ought to be able to recognize it. But you know what? The minute you start realizing... and. What's fun about the Concours Mondial is we taste wines from all over the world. We don't just taste Burgundy, Bordeaux, California Cabernet. We tasted red wines from the Balearic Islands. Okay, that's Mallorca, Menorca. You know, I, I always I always get that in the wine too. I say, you know, this is from the Balearic. Yeah, Islands, I'll bet you right? do. Yeah. I, we tasted Chenin Blanc from Peru. So you start tasting this stuff, and all of a sudden, all bets are off. Where do you think this came from? And everybody starts looking at everybody else saying, I want you go first. <laughs> yeah. The more you drink, the more you realize how many good wines there are out there in the world, the harder it is to get specific about what it is you're drinking. Absolutely. And I have uh, another great, uh, great moment in blind tasting. Uh, in Napa Valley... This is a catechism. People know this. This is the Judgment of Paris. Ah, it was, yes. There was a movie made after this. Yes. Um, the date was May 24th, 1976. <laughs> the uh, the guy who put it together, who's actually a pretty charming guy. and I Very was, charming. Uh, yeah, he was at one of the years I was at the CIA taking classes. He was there helping out. Um, oh, yeah. And he was just a charming, charming guy. I like this guy named Steven Spurrier. Mm -hmm. he, at the time, not owned, the football coach. Not the, not the, the football coach, yeah. He owned a Paris wine shop, um, and he staged at the Intercontinental Hotel in Paris what was basically a stunt to get attention for his wine shop. So he, mm -hmm. he compared some California wines, most of them from Napa, was head-to-head uh, -head blind tasting with some of France's best Bordeaux's from the Reds and some of the best Burgundies for the whites. Right. So there's you know right. basically cab-like wines and Chardonnays this, versus California. This is comparable to the first and second Super Bowls where you have yes. the NF NFL playing the AFL. Uh, of course, now it's NFC and AFC. Yes, but, but in those then, days, right. it was two different leagues. Yeah, California was AFL minus even. But right. Yes. Well, in the minds of the French, it certainly sure. was. Yeah. Yeah. And so these were they had eleven judges, right. very very renowned judges. They were all French. All French. All French. Yep. And uh, and they uh, the recounting, by the way, makes them sound particularly sniffy. But I suspect that's just how they were. Well. I actually did have a uh, – I, I, I saw Stephen Spurrier's comment that said a couple of the judges at the end of this tasting were really quite embarrassed and quite 
quite angry that Stephen had misled them. Right, right. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I read I read some of the stories, well, much later, because there right. was only one story written that day. Right. Um, but basically, the judges, you know, near gags on what they thought was the American wines. And at one point, uh, one judge said, ah, back to France. Right. And he, that, was, that was when he had tasted a 1972 Fremark Abbey Napa Valley right. Chardonnay. So he thought he's back to France. He's taking Napa Valley Chardonnay. Three of the four top whites were California wines. The winner was the Chateau Montalegna Chardonnay, which was the subject of bo- the movie Bottle Shock. Mm-hmm. A little different story than the actual movie. Um, right. And, or than the actual – the movie was different from the actual life. And then the top red, wait, which wait, was – Wait, you mean Hollywood changed the story? Oh, just a tad. I'm shocked, I tell you. For example, you. by the way, they had it out in the in the, the wilds of some you know farms somewhere. Yeah, It was yeah. in the Intercontinental Paris. Hotel in Paris, right? Yeah. Um, and the wine didn't turn brown, and yeah. uh, and and they, but they never mentioned the winemaker, by the way, Mike Gergich, right? Uh, it Who was, now has it his was own winery, the Beaubarret. Well, you know, but in any case, yeah. So the winner was, uh, and then the red was uh, Warren Winiarski's uh, 1973 SLV Napa Valley Cabernet Stag's Leap Wine Cellars. Stag's Leap Wine Cellars, and that's um, and that was even worse because the red was the big dog against that's Bordeaux, right. and right. and the California wine won. Yep. Um, and the, the French, you know, like you said, they they claimed they'd been tricked. I think they claimed steroid use and blood doping. <laughs> <laughs> there was a time that the story about it, the Time Magazine story, the winemaker notes from from Warniarski and Mike Ergich are in the Smithsonian. As are bottles of the wine. As are bottles of the wine. Yeah. And yeah, it, yeah, yeah, it yeah. basically gave this cachet to California and its nap in particular that it never had. And it changed the wine world. And it was actually really just luck. That George Tabor, the the writer, happened to wander. Happened, he was he invited, a, didn't think he could make it, stopped in at the last had minute. Had a slow day, yeah. And yet, when he wrote that story in Time magazine, it immediately gave what twenty million Americans who drank wine at the time permission to say, you know what, I can drink California wine because it tastes every bit as good as French wine. Uh, yes, it is. Um, it, it was it, the Joe Namath Super Bowl. Yeah, it the, was the first time the AFC beat the NFC. And, and it was not, by the way, the Judgment of Paris of Greek mythology. No, which was a whole different no. thing, which I'm not going to get into. But uh, Alexander of Troy was Paris, and it led to the Trojan War. And we should do this sometime if I can find a wine connection. Yeah, good um, luck. But um, all any- I got to say is, when when you win the prize and it's the most beautiful woman in the world, and oh by the way, she's married to somebody else, that makes things that come on now. Greeks got a little ticked. Yeah. Yes. Launched a thousand ships, as the saying goes. Uh, you are listening to Ball Talk with Rick and Paul. When we come back, we have lots more questions. And next week, one of those listeners who asked a question could be you. Stay with us. You're listening to Ball Talk with Rick and Paul. We're going back to our mailbag. We only had one question earlier, so we're going to take a few. Uh, if you'd like to ask us a question that we can answer on the air, we'll give you credit. We promise. Go to and, rickandpaulwine.com. And they can ask a question that we can't answer, too. Well, we, that's, we're pretty good that's at that. That's easier. In fact, would you ask, ask us a question that we can't Please answer? Please ask us a question <laughs> we, we can we answer. Sure, we would sure appreciate that. Uh, so here's here's one that, um, that I like. This is from uh, Jennifer Spivey in Cupertino. Uh-huh. Okay. We have a debate in my office, she says. Most of us are just getting into wine. Does vintage mean the year the wine comes out or the year the grapes were picked? And how much does it really matter? Ooh, ooh, ooh. It's a question we can answer, Rick. I know this one. This is so cool. That's why I liked it. Excellent. It's okay, a good so the one. answer is anytime you see the vintage date on a bottle of wine, it's the year the grapes were picked, harvested. Always, always. Because wines right. come out at very different times. And it really, it means nothing to you as a. 
as a, a wine drinker, right, if the wine had been whether I mean in terms of comparison to other things, right, it, it it's no reference point whether right. it had been aged for two years or four years. It tells you something about the wine, but not about the comparison. So always that. And how much does it really matter? Well, you know, in California, less than in other places. Um, right. In, in, but in and in the cer- certainly in many of the the sort of what we would call supermarket wines, also much less because right. they have formulas that they can make the wine. There's ways to change the wine. But for higher end wines, well, and, it's not like they're it's not like they're changing the wine, but they make wine to a specific standard. Right, and they, so they bring something in to fix. Right. They could, but they can also take the alcohol out or add something. Uh, they can add water to, to lower it. So there's things that, that yeah. can be done. Just to be clear, Rick, you can't really muck around with making wine very much. But when you have a large company it's a recipe. that's making large yes. amounts of wine, they are less interested in expressing the individual variations of the vintage. They're more interested in getting a bottle of wine that's consistent year after year. So if it looks like the next year is going to be a little that way, they may farm their vineyard a little differently to pull the character back into line. Or, or buy some grapes from somewhere else if it's a large right. winery. Yeah. And, right. and this is with the intention of the fact of, of that us, the consumers, going to the wine, and to the, the store, buying the wine and, and being and saying, as yep, happy with it as we were the, the same last stuff time. I liked it's, last it's, time. It's not a crime. Right. Um, but for many other wines, and you know, if you go to places like Burgundy, it really matters. Much more uh, so. Because one, the vineyards are small. You know, there's each lot well, could be very small, but also because the weather changes could right. be much in, more dramatic. In, in Europe in general, right. particularly northern Europe, they're growing grapes right at the edge of where they get ripe. And if they do get a cold year, the grapes don't get as ripe. And you can tell that in the wine. Yeah, and you get some, I mean, there are places, you know, some of the in, in Saturns where they won't make the wine. Right. Uh, now, I, I do need to clarify one thing here, which is sometimes I get questions from people saying, I have a really old bottle of wine, and they will, it, it's a, it is always an imported wine. And it will always have some gold medals or something across the top, and there hidden in that will be a date. It's almost never the vintage date of the wine. It's almost always either the date the winery was founded or the date it mm. won those medals 100 years ago. So they're thinking they found this rare treasure. And when it turns in fact, out the wine's four years old. It's Well, or it may be <laughs> 50 years old, but it was just an inexpensive wine. They bottled up quickly, ah. but they, you know, it's the, it's the since 1937, that does not mean the wine in your bottle. Right. Came right. from 1937. Right, right. Um, so it doesn't matter. Yeah, it depends on the wine. It's you know, it's almost like if the 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 higher the generally the more expensive the wine, the, the more the vintage will matter some because it's yeah, it's just often. Yeah. But also, if you if the wine comes from a place where the, it seems like the weather is a little more harsh, the the vintage will matter. Then so then how do you know? There's plenty of places you can look them up online. Really, almost anything. If you just right. Google wherever the wine is from and vintage year, you'll get some description of whether it's a good year or bad year. Um, but if but you're buying I would wine just in the market, be, I would just be careful. I I can't tell you the number of times that we have had vintages. And, that were, you know, this is a disaster. This right. is ter- and then you taste the wine. You know what? Tastes pretty good. Yeah, and that's the thing with winemaking these days and the cap- capabilities of, of, of any wine. It's, it's, you know, yeah. it's, we're still p- talking about the, in the margins in a lot right. of ways. So, 5%, 10% difference? Yes. Yes. 30 40%? Probably not. Right. What else you uh, got in there? Uh, all right. So here's another one I like. This is from uh, Jenny Fontenot in Calistoga. Uh-huh. Excellent. Uh, she says, I just moved to Napa Valley, and I'm learning all kinds of things about wine, even from you guys. <laughs> she seems so surprised. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> I just learned when I taste the wine at a restaurant, it's to see if it's gone bad. Is it really? Is a really good wine less likely to go bad? 
And will a good wine stay better if we don't finish the bottle? All right, I need to say right off the bat, I don't understand the second part of that question. Oh, I do. Wait a minute. You don't finish the bottle. It makes oh, no, I see. I see. I see. Uh, yes. Yeah, well, I do, what, Rick. I what, do what's understand What's the reference? That. Jenny? Yeah. Don't, which, Jenny, no, this seriously, is good. Seriously, yes. And okay, so, so these are two good questions. Yes, they are. Yeah. And they're very different questions. Yes, they are. The first one is, when she's tasting wine, is it likely that a good wine is less likely to have had have some a, problem have a flaw right. than a than a than a and the answer is if she means a really expensive wine the answer is expensive wines can be mistreated just as easily as inexpensive wines and an expensive wine can just as easily get a bad cork as an inexpensive wine so in fact the answer to her question is all wines are about equally likely to get rejected in a restaurant for being flawed in some way right Right. And, and I mean, you could we, – we've talked about this in the past, I suppose. If you were getting expensive wine at the winery, there's, it's more likely to have not have been transported a lot. Well, same is true of an inexpensive right. wine at the winery, though. Absolutely right? true. Very good so, Very good point. You know, very good enough. point. Right, right, yeah. right. Um, and so, uh, yeah. So that, but, but then the second question, part of the yeah. question is, is a better is – a, is a more nuanced uh, answer, which is not the sort of thing you expect from us. A nuanced answer. No. Or if, really. No. In fact, well, we, we're surprised we have, we have listeners who have this kind of um, intelligence and Or a trust in us. That's right. Oh, so, Jenny's only has a little trust in us. So that's I, right. Frank, uh, so, but I, and the only problem I have with the way this question is asked is it says, will a good wine stay better if we don't finish the bottle? What adds to a bottle's ability to stay good beyond a single day is balance and acidity. Now, if if Jenny is someone who likes very big, rich wines with low acidity, they won't last as well in the bottle. But if she likes wines that are a little brighter, a little fresher, but perhaps not as big and soft, they will probably stay fresher longer. Again, it gets back to that old lemon juice protecting the salad bar. The acidity in wine will protect the fruit in the wine. And so it's really not a question of quality so much as a question as of the style. Kind of wine. Absolutely. Yep. You know, and so th- th- that starts to then become even more complicated. Let's say it's a big red. Right. So if it is a big red with some tannins in it, yep. tannins are also a preservative. It's sort of one of the reasons why people age um, or can age those the giant reds like Cabernets from yep. California and Bordeaux. So if there's if it was a wine that had some tannin, I, you know, I, I'm I'm sure that uh, it, even though you're new to wine, that you can probably if you can't figure those tannins that sort of scratchy feeling in your mouth um, that that adds it to that. That those wines also will have some staying power if you didn't finish it and you were drinking it the next day. As, Not as much as the acidity, right. but it has something. Right. And then the third side of the coin <laughs> oh, good. is now sugar. We're, now we're in trouble. So if it's if it you got, say, a sweet Riesling, a sweeter Riesling, right. sugar, the sugar also preserves wine. Or, a little bit. Yeah. Yep. And so that, that yep. can also have some impact. Yep. So, Jenny, I think we probably disappointed you now, and, and you, you won't learn things from us anymore. But uh, Well, the, we answered the first we question. We certainly got the first part Which right. is, yes. it doesn't make any difference. Any, any wine can mm-hmm. have a problem that you would detect in a restaurant and reject. And the second question is, it's really less a question of quality and more a question of the style of wine. Right. Uh, all right. All right. Uh, we have one from Adam Clifton, Clifford, excuse me, Adam Clifford in Oakland. Uh, it's actually not a bad question. How long does it take wine to go bad in my trunk? <laughs> <laughs> wow. Okay. And he's in Oakland. He's in Oakland. Okay. Well, if it's you're driving around Oakland, you probably have a bit of time if it's cold and foggy. If the sun comes out in summer. Don't make the mistake of doing this with bubbly. 
No, no, no. Bottle no, no. of bubbly rolling around in your trunk in about 30 minutes will become a ticking time bomb. And when you pull the cork, it'll yeah, blow Yeah, it's the off. rolling around part. Right. I'm it'll... actually, I'm thinking that Adam's got them in a box or something so that the bottle's not rolling around. Okay. So don't worry. I think, I think what he's thinking is maybe he bought a, a couple of bottles of wine, had the box, had the right. case box. So and, if he's yeah. driving around for half an hour and it's 70 degrees, no big deal. Here's the problem if he's parked in the sun. Oh, yeah. Because the minute a wine gets over about 80, 85 degrees, and, st- and, and it just gets worse from there on, and that's the real problem yes. with keeping wine in And that's trunk. the key. That's instantaneous. And, and you can, in the cork could pop. You know, the, wi- yeah. the wine will expand. And the wine boom. expands, pushes the cork. Yeah. And if you're not sure, by the way, sometimes you can see, you can, if it looks like the cork moved a little bit, you might have had some problems. Having said that, I had one where it looked like, you know, you could see that the cork started to pull. Yep. So we, we drank it that night, and it was fine. Yep. Because um, when was the last time you looked at a bottle of wine that carefully and didn't drink it that night? Rarely. <laughs> really. Yeah, if we look at it, we're drinking it. Um, no, absolutely true. Um, but it is, uh, you know, really, that is one of the mistakes that many, many people make when they go wine tasting, you know, right. is, or, you know, or even thinking about their shopping. Yep. Um, is they don't, they think of wine as something you just sit in the car for a long time. Right. No, you want, you want to think of wine like ice cream. Once you buy it, you want to get it home fairly quickly. And, and, and temperature is the real enemy here. Way less about v- vibration, way less. It's not even time. It is actually temperature. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Uh, and so, yeah, you know, if you do, uh, you know, one of the things that, that some people do, um, I, I when I had a trunk, I don't have a car with a trunk anymore, um, but I had a trunk. I always kept just a little uh, styrofoam cooler in there. Yep. Um, you know, yep. I have a little insulated bag that I keep back yeah, there. Yeah, that's what I do now is just have, yep. you know, insulated bags. Um, I try not to drive wearing them. Because you can't see, <laughs> but it keeps me cool, and so that, well, that's something. Put them on your feet, keep <laughs> yeah, your toes right. cold. <laughs> okay, um, that. But that's a good one. Uh, and uh, uh, we, uh, we, I think we're going to zip up the mailbag. You know, I are we? I think it's time to zip it up. So okay. uh, we've heard enough we, from our listeners. We've for been one told more. to zip it up many times. <laughs> and if you'd like to ask us a question, go to Rick and Paul Wine. All one word: rickandpaulwine.com. Coming up, a very quick food pairing for you. You're listening to Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul. I've got an interesting one because I had a really interesting result to this, uh, and so I'm bringing it up. Clam clam linguine. Are you bringing up the clam linguine? No, I actually kept it down. It was really good stuff. Um, (laughs) So clam linguine. Yep. I tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to tell you mine while you— Okay. This is, on an Italian restaurant, this is the one that would appear linguine con vongole. um, Sure. Yes. Uh, <laughs> yes. Absolute little butter sauce. It was. It was. Uh, it was actually in an event that I did where the chef, you know, is a great chef. This I do these and uh, and he, I give him the wines and then he makes the food and he was he's a seafood place. Yep. And we were doing Argentinian Malbecs and it worked really well. And what happened okay. was no tomato. It, no tomato. It okay. was. It was. A, but it was a wine sauce and it okay. and it it just it. Brought the spice out in a wine, so uh-huh, uh-huh. Um, so that was that one worked really well. And, and each wine it was a handful of Malbecs. Each one tasted very different with it, but it all brought sort of the the, the spicy characteristics wow. of the wine. That was really good. Okay, that so, is not a common fact. I would say that red wine with shellfish, unless the shellfish is al diavolo, which has the tomatoes and the spice, I wouldn't go for that. Yeah. I would go for something crisp, light, lively, white. Um, Colio Bianco from the northeastern Italy with some real crispness and bright, fresh, 
refreshing. Think of it as that little slice of lemon on the plate. You yeah. eat the clam. Yeah. You want a little refreshment. You drink the wine. Your mouth feels refreshed. You eat a little more clam. You drink a little more wine. Would be my direction, yeah. You can do that for a long yeah. time. Yeah, and those really bright, fresh whites, and that's a, that's a, it's a good idea. So I'm yep. just saying the Malbec was a surprise. Well, speaking of surprises, we've managed to survive another show. There you go. And that, uh, so that's it for Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul for today. Our engineer is Matt Pacini. Thanks, Matt. Thanks for putting up with us. And thank you to Capital Public Radio for the studio use. If you'd like to ask us a question one more time, you still can next week. And it's rickandpaulwine.com, all one word, Rick and Paul Wine. Or look for us on iTunes. You can subscribe for free with just a click. If you learned anything today, and we kind of doubt it, uh, it's, it's be careful with the dapper leprechauns, dapper leprechauns and the meadow and the gazelles and, and all yeah, that kind of stuff. dangerous stuff. Uh, I'm Rick Cushman. I'm Paul Wagner. And remember, the best wines you drink are with friends. Or with us. Especially us. <laughs> <laughs>